0: the first thing we learn is that work is not the result of the fall.
1: Hello and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today, Pastor Jeff talks about how being changed by the Gospel should affect every area of our lives, including our jobs and our attitude towards work.
0: And then he finishes the whole context in Ephesians by saying, and if the gospel has penetrated your life, it means that your work will honor God.
1: This is Today
0: with Jeff Fiennes. Welcome, everyone. Turn in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6. And while you're turning there... I want to ask you three questions. It's probably best that you don't say the answer out loud, but I want you to think about them. Number one, first question, do you like your job? (laughs) I said, keep it to yourself. I'm glad you do, those of you who spoke. Number two, second question, do you hate your job? Okay, all right. Number three, do you tolerate your job? That is, you're somewhat apathetic. You don't hate it. You don't love it. It's just a job. It's life okay? CareerCast published the worst 10 jobs. And there's three criteria. Number one, it would be high stress, two, low pay, and three, little hope of promotion. So what are the 10 worst jobs? I'm going to give you the top six. Number one, taxi driver, especially Uber. (laughs) Number two, any job in retail, a retail salesperson. One of my first jobs I worked at Watson's as a men's clothes salesman, worst job I ever had. Number three, and I didn't really get it and I read and still couldn't understand it, DJ. A DJ. (laughs) What's so stressful about a DJ? Then I started thinking, what happens here at our church? Music's too loud and they don't play the songs I like. I hear that all the time, so maybe that's the stress. Four, pest control worker. (laughs) I don't know why. Five, a logger. I don't know any loggers, so I couldn't talk to anybody. Number six, a reporter. Now, I found this interesting. Evidently, if you're a reporter, if you're one of those guys that the anchor goes to for a report, number one, you don't make a lot of money. Number two, it's high stress because you got to perform live on camera. And three, there's not much opportunity of promotion. That's why you're out there. <laughs> now, guess what the number one job entry-level. That is less stress, high pay, and great opportunity for advancement. Number one job, a physical therapist. Starting salary of 80000 plus. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. <laughs> Evidently, there's a lot of people who need physical therapy. Now, what does the Bible say about your job? It says this, slaves. Ephesians 6, 5-8. Yeah, slaves. This passage comes on the heels of something that happens in Ephesians 5.18 when the apostle Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit, be intoxicated with godly things. And here's the assumption that Paul is making. And let me just say before I get into this, because I got to run at a rapid race, listen this weekend. Some of you are going to discover right now why you're so depressed. Others of you are going to realize that you missed something. But I'm here to tell you, you can get your way back to it. This is probably the most valuable sermon other than the gospel I could ever preach to someone who's in their 20s. The Apostle Paul assumes that if you're filled with the Spirit, if the gospel has penetrated your life, that you're living a different life, that the gospel is in you. And if you read Ephesians 5 and 6, he'll tell you that means that children are obeying their parents, that fathers will not exasperate their children. That's a word that means they're consistent. In other words, if you punish your child for something that he did, and he does it again and you don't, that's called exasperating your kid. Or if you're inconsistent in what you tell them, that you tell him one thing and live another, and the Bible says, don't do that. Husbands will love their wives as Christ loved the church. They will sacrifice for her. Wives will honor their husbands. That's a sermon in and of itself because it has to do with respect and not using sex as a weapon. It's a whole different sermon. <coughs> don't you wish I'd keep going on that one? (laughs) Wives and husbands will submit to each other. If you read Ephesians five, it's mutual submission. And then he finishes the whole context in Ephesians by saying, and if the gospel has penetrated your life, it means that your work will honor God. And he says in verse five, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Now, Before I go on, this is the point at which usually I discard all this information. Every time I come to this point and I want to address it, I can't because of time, but oh no, not this weekend. Because I know there are people who say, whoa, stop right there, Jeff. This is why I can't believe the Bible. The Bible condones slavery. And if the Bible is wrong about slavery, what else is it wrong about in the story? And my response to you is this, take a chill pill. (laughs) Take off your cultural blinders, because when you and I see the word slave, we automatically think of 18th, 19th century new world slavery, where there's a ship that goes to another country and hijacks people, kidnaps them, puts them in shackles, and takes them to a place they don't want to be. But 21st century slavery, the way you and I know it, is vastly different from the context into which the apostle Paul is writing. How? Let me give you four examples, and I've written them down for you. Number one, in Greco-Roman world, slaves were not distinguishable from anyone else by race, speech, or clothing. So you couldn't look at the person and say, there's a slave, because they looked and lived like everybody else, and they were not segregated from the rest of society in education, worship, and often in social invitation. The second difference between what you and I think of as slavery in the 19th century, 18th century, and the first century context in which Paul writes Slaves were often more educated than their owners, in many cases and many times held high managerial positions. Third, from a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and therefore were not poor and often accrued enough personal capital to buy themselves out. And fourth, very few persons were slave for life in the first century, most expected to be manumitted about 10 years or by the late 30s at the latest. So you say, oh, wait, wait, Pastor Jeff. What was slavery then in the context in which Paul is writing? Well, it took the form of two categories. Number one, indentured servants. Do you know what that is? It's when you're poor and you need a job. So you go to the master of the household and you say, I would like to become your servant. That's a better translation here, by the way. I would like to become your servant and you would enter into a contract. You'd sign up and then you would be a servant and they would be your master so that you can make some money. It's a job. But the second thing was about debt reduction. Your family owed money. And there was only one rule in the economy of debt in the first century. There was no such thing as chapter 7 or chapter 11. If you owed money, you had to pay it. And if you couldn't pay it, then your children would work for the master. They would become his servants until your debt was paid off. That's how it worked. Now, Jesus assumed this when he told a story in Matthew 18. He said, there's a king who began to settle accounts or a master. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him since he was not able to pay the master order that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So they're not led in shackles and chains. They're simply offered employment by the master whom the slave or the servant owes all the money to until the debt is Paid off. It's how it worked in first century. In contrast, New World slavery—the way you and I look at slavery, seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth century—it was always race-based. You were typically a slave for life, and it was resource by kidnapping, which the Bible categorically condemns in First Timothy one nine through eleven and Deuteronomy twenty four seven. Murray Harris, who's an historian who's not a Christ follower, so there's no axe to grind, simply puts the difference like this. Therefore, while the early Christians like St. Paul facing first century slavery discouraged it, but did not go on a campaign to end it, 18th and 19th century Christians, when faced with new world slavery, did work for its complete abolition because it could not be squared in any way with Bible teaching. What's the point? The Bible does not condone slavery. Does it condone paying off a debt? Yes. Somebody might say, hold on a minute, but didn't Christians in the South where you grew up, Pastor Jeff, use some of these same verses to subjugate the African slaves? And the answer is yes. Why? Because they were hammerheads. The danger always exists of twisting and turning and perverting the scriptures to defend an ungodly position. And it usually happens, by the way, when you're ignorant of the culture into which the Bible was written. But if we threw out every book that led somebody to do something stupid, there'd be no books in the world. However, does that mean, am I saying that slavery, the way you and I know it in 17th, 18th, 19th century, never existed in the ancient world? Well, that's crazy. It's existed from almost day one. The strong have subdued the weak. This is today with
1: Jeff Vines, and his message is about the gospel in your work, how our work should
0: honour God. Let's continue. There's a Harvard historian that does a great amount of research on this, and there's a Harvard historian that says, you know, we historians ask different questions than the typical person. Most people look at slavery in the world, and they will say, why did so many people in so many generations tolerate slavery? Tolerate the strong, subduing the weak, the conqueror, subduing the conquered. Why, why did they allow this? Why didn't somebody stand up and eradicate it? Why has it gone on for hundreds and hundreds of years? He says, that's what we ask, but I'm a historian, he says. And I ask a different question. Now stay with me. He says, I ask, given the reality that slavery has been indicative of the world almost from the beginning for hundreds and hundreds of years, why is it that somebody in some generation past stood up and began to say, you know what? This probably isn't good. It probably needs to be changed. And this Harvard historian says, you cannot deny, as you look back over history, that slavery was changed by this Jewish carpenter named Jesus and his little faith community that were changed because of his teaching that all men and women are created equally. If you want to know how slavery ended, you can blame this carpenter from Nazareth. In fact, he goes on to say that most people don't even realize that Jesus changed the way we look at human rights. You know that little phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and have been endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. (laughs) And this Harvard historian says, but wait a minute, where did that idea come from? Because it has not been self-evident to a lot of other people, goths. The Huns, the Nazis, the caste system still existing today in India. So where did this whole idea originate? This thought and belief that all men and women were created in the image of God and should be treated equally. And he says, it came from these pesky little Christ followers. And their idea reached its height in the words of the apostle Paul in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male, female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus. And Thomas Cahill, another historian, writes this, referring to Galatians 3.28, this is the first expression of egalitarianism in human history that every human being has equal dignity and worth. You've heard me say that women have Jesus to thank for starting the teaching that men and women are equal. And Christians have blown it for a long time and still blow it. But don't blame Jesus. He taught it and has been teaching it for hundreds of years. Now, it's, it's true that Christians often miss the mark. I said earlier that I grew up in the South and the people in the South did not stand up against racism the way they should have. And yet the power of Jesus teaching his life, his presence has this subversive way of refusing to stay submerged. And it keeps breaking through because ultimately who's responsible for the end of the slave trade in Europe? William Wilberforce. A committed Christ follower who struggled for 17 years, who was gifted in the area of argumentation, argued in the courts for 17 years until finally slavery was abolished. Let me show you a passage of scripture that really motivated those who put an end to slavery. Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples but by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So the early Christ followers said, wait a minute, we're all truly brothers and sisters because we have the same parents, have the same ancestors. We've all been created in the image of God. Now, here's my point, and then I'll move on. At least Christ followers have an ultimate point of reference for claiming that slavery is a moral wrong. And the ultimate point of reference is God created us in his image. But if I'm a secularist or secular atheist, I may say that slavery is wrong, but I don't have an objective point of reference to prove such. Because if there's no God, there's no objective moral law. If there's no God, there's no sanctity of life. It's time plus matter plus chance. And If if there's no God, there's no intrinsic justice to denounce the strong exploiting the weak. In fact, if I'm an atheist and I believe in atheistic evolution, then the motto of atheistic evolution is the survival of the fittest. So we should expect the strong to subdue the weak and shouldn't have a problem with slavery. But if we're Christ followers and we believe in a God who created all things and he created all of us equally then slavery is horribly, horribly wrong. Now back to the passage then. Ephesians 6, 5 says, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. Well, the question is, who are the slaves Jesus is talking to? Or the apostle Paul? Well, they're indentured servants, people who needed a job, people who are trying to pay their debt. That's you and me. Do you not need a job? And are you not paying off your debts? Some of you more than others. So the way this text is applied is between the employer and employee. It's about your job. It's about the fact that you do work to survive and you do work to pay your debts. So if the gospel gets into your life, Paul says to you, whatever your job is, whatever your work is, here's what Jesus says. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And the apostle Paul then is trying to open up your eyes. Now, let me take another breath here. Listen to me. Do not fall asleep in this sermon. Especially if you're in your 20s. But no matter what age you are, listen to me. This is so important. It might be the reason so many of you are depressed. It might be the reason you feel unfulfilled. It might be the reason that you're just... Your temperament is up and down, up and down, up and down. Because the first thing we learn is that work is not the result of the fall. In Genesis 2... The Bible says, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So God created paradise and he said, Adam and Eve, cultivate this garden, work it, nourish it, cultivate it, take care of it, keep it. You say, okay, Pastor Jeff, what's your point? The point is this is a pre-fall text. Work was part of the original paradise. It's not the curse that came after the fall. This was God's plan from the beginning that we would work until and cultivate that our lives would be more than just Throwing the football around the backyard and eating some fruit. That we would have accomplishment, that God wired us to work, that work preceded sin. It's not the result of it. So that from the very beginning, work is given and seen as a gift to you. Work is a gift to you because God is someone who works and creates and takes everything and makes the very best out of it. And because you and I were created in the image of God, then. Even if there were no sin, even if Adam and Eve had not sinned, there'd still be work. Even in heaven, the Bible says you're going to have responsibility. There's going to be work because evidently real joy is tied to accomplishment. Now, there's such a temptation for me to go on a little political rant here, but I don't. But I want to, but I won't. I didn't say that your work is not being cursed. I said that work... It's not a curse because we know in the Bible, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God said, curse is the ground because of you through painful toil. You will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food. And anybody who has a job in this room, because some of you are saying, man, this sermon doesn't apply to me. I don't have a job. And that's why your parents are saying they, they want me to tell you get a job. And <laughs> just so you know, but those of you who do have a job, you know, no matter how hard you work, you know, no matter how hard you work, no matter how good and perfect your work is, there's always thorns and thistles. And the Bible says you shouldn't be surprised because your work to a degree is cursed, but work in and of itself is not a curse. God did not look at Adam and Eve and say, all right, you sinned. That's it. Now you're going to have to work for your food. <laughs> work was originally part of paradise. It was part of the package where God looked down and said, truly, this is good. Now here's the problem. Here's where we make our first turn the problem is in affluent america where we are possessed with leisure we think work is a curse and when you start to think work is a curse you fall for one of two lies number one you start to work only to live to you your job is all about the money show me the money i'll do what i have to do and i'll work this lousy job and i'll be strapped to this master but I only do it because I'm afraid that I won't have enough money to eat and survive and do all the leisurely things I wanna do. So now you're possessed by work, or second, your work possesses you. You live only to work. Ultimately, work is about your identity. You do what you do, because if you didn't have a job, you would ask the question, do I even exist? Does my life matter? And you're attached to your job so tightly that it's become an idol. This is a major problem in the secular Western world. You either one work only to live. I got to make as much money as I can. You don't even care if you're making a contribution to God's world or society. You just want to get it done, clock out, give me the check, show me the money so I can do what I really want to do. Now, here's what history has shown us. When that becomes the attitude of any culture or society, it's the first step to disintegration because the quality of people's work significantly decreases when they're just working for a paycheck and they're not asking, what contribution am I making to God's world and to God's kingdom? When money's the ultimate goal, you're driven by it. The other lie that you fall for, though, is that you begin to live to work. Your work is your fulfillment, it's the meaning of your life. And here's the problem stay with me. Work, instead of being your dignity of accomplishment, becomes your definition. Your identity is all wrapped up in your work. Look at what I can do. This is who I ultimately am. Those kind of people are all around us. Everybody knows someone. Without their job, they'd be suicidal. Because without their job, they'd have no identity. They wouldn't know who they are. Seriously. There have been people who kill themselves when they lose their job, not because they're afraid of money or the lack of it, but because they have no identity. They lost their job, they lost the essential them. So your work, you're tied to it. It's your significance and identity. And by having the job and being successful, you've convinced yourself that you exist, that you matter, that you're important. Now, listen carefully. Both of these attitudes about your work will kill you. Both of them will kill you ultimately.
1: This is today with Jeff Vines. We'll have to leave it there for today, but we'll continue The Gospel in Your Work next time, so please
0: join us then. Cuz your talent and the way God gifted you and your passion are working together. Cuz when they do, you're going to get incredible fulfillment out of your job. I will praise you, the one me. I
1: will keep praise you. Yeah. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life.